calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Realm Presents Outliers, a Realm Original. Episode 2. The outliers have opposable thumbs. Their silhouette is humanoid, upright, two arms and two legs, ape-like hands and feet with stumpy fingers and toes, a thick, boxy torso, a skin-like membrane stretched atop their exoskeleton that is the same pale lavender of the romanticized corpse of a young girl in a Victorian-era novel or an Elizabethan play. No nose or ears to speak of, just two slits for nostrils, a wide slit for a mouth, and gill-like flaps for ears, as bald as an egg. No fingernails or toenails, no genitalia, no gender markers or characteristics. As sexless as the plastic dolls children once played with. Dodd doesn't believe they reproduce. He doesn't think they're hermaphrodites either. More like a single generation of short-lived genetic mutants with a humanoid shape who stand upright like we do, with two arms and two legs. That's the part that always gets to me. How easy it is to mistake them for humans when they're silhouetted against the horizon in the twilight or at dawn or silhouetted against the backdrop of a campfire. They're it's, Da has to remind me sometimes. Not he's or she's. Outliers. It suits. I've never seen an outlier child. All the outliers are the size of medium-sized adult humans, which means shorter than Da, who's very tall and as alike as the terracotta warriors I saw in a picture book about ancient China. Distinctive, but, at first glance anyway, pretty much indistinct from each other. The outliers are ectothermic, or cold-blooded, not warm-blooded endothermic mammals like Da and me. Their lizard brain is dominant. They can't read. They can't feel anything. Except for pain, and hunger, and cold. Ectothermic creatures can't manufacture warmth like mammals can, they have no internal combustion engine that heats up their blood and muscle tissue. They need the sun to enliven them, to get their fluids flowing, to stay alive. Which is why Da and me live in the far north, in the mountains, where the air is thin and the snow covers the ground much of the year. 
where thick gray clouds scraped the treetops three seasons out of four. Without the warmth of sunlight, the outliers are sluggish and docile, easy to kill. I'm a bow hunter. Robin Hood from the old stories has nothing on me. If I had to, I could put an arrow through the heart of an outlier before I could catch a whiff of my scent in the breeze, but I've only ever killed one, at least intentionally. It's their silhouette that stops me from shooting at them like tin cans on a log. That naked silhouette that's upright. Two arms and two legs. Humanoid. Like me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to killing. I hunt rabbits and deer for food. Squirrels sometimes. And elk. For Da and me. Nose to tail. Nothing I hunt is wasted. Every ounce of meat is consumed. Bones are ground down to powder to bulk up the grains and gristle for the dogs. Skins are stretched and dried and used to patch or remake the clothes we have. The outliers aren't consumable, and they bite. They're carnivorous. I know this fact from observation. I once saw one crouch in the woods, eating the steaming innards of a dead deer that had been taken down by a pack of wolves. Blood dripped down its chin and spattered on its bare knees. Eyes like polished, wet obsidian. No white sclera. Like the crazed zombies featured in a comic book I found in the attic of an abandoned farmhouse. The wolves came back and killed the outlier in turn. Tore it to pieces. And then the wolves died, foaming at the mouth, besieged by a madness that caused them to chew off their tails and even their paws. Lisa, Da explained. Rabies. A virus. Worse even than bacteria. No, the outliers are not prey. Dead, they are toxic waste. Alive, they are a threat to our existence. Da has killed many outliers. Hundreds, maybe. Thousands, possibly. Not just by electrocuting them, either. He shoots them with his rifle, sometimes with one of the handguns. When I was small, I almost got used to the concussive sound of gunfire near the perimeter fence, the echoes of shots reverberating through the woods. Sometimes he'd carry his rocking chair outside and sit all night next to the campfire he'd set ablaze to attract them. The outliers are instinctively attracted to fire, for the warmth I expect, maybe to the light. And I've seen them walk straight into a burning fire, arms straight out like Frankenstein's monster only to go up in flames with a crinkly pop like that of a burning grasshopper. Da told me he shot them because he wanted to reduce their population and the threat they posed. I'd believed him. But one evening, I found him sitting out in his rocking chair by the perimeter fence, campfire blazing, drinking from a bottle of whiskey he'd found. The only time I'd ever seen him drunk and slurring his words. He'd been firing at the outliers who emerged from the trees. Target practice, he told me, and laughed. Hell of a good time I'm having, boy. I took this for an aberration. He'd always been respectful of living things, tolerant of nature, kind to me and to the dogs. He never acknowledged what he'd said that evening. I never did either. I never saw him drunk again. The day finally came when Da decided it would be prudent to save on ammunition. Our supply of gunpowder is finite, he pointed out. From then on, he didn't shoot the outliers unless we came upon them outside the compound, where they were an imminent threat. The day I killed an outlier was very cold. Late winter, the knife edge of spring, when it's safe to venture north into the beyond without risking being trapped outdoors in a sudden winter squall. We'd come upon the ruins of an old farmhouse that we'd scavenged before, but this time, Dodd discovered an underground storm shelter half buried under some derelict farm machinery. Storm shelters, we knew from experience, were often used to store supplies. Some were veritable treasure troves. Whenever we came across one, we never left it unexplored. 
The metal door had jammed, and he was using a crowbar to try to pry it open, concentrating, grunting with effort. He'd left his rifle leaning against the farmhouse porch. I was about 50 yards away, using a stick to poke around in the ashes of a barn that had burned to the ground, daydreaming like a dumb kid, musing. Did the barn burn when someone with an oil lamp accidentally brushed up against dry straw? Or did the owner of the property consider the tilting structure a hazard and burn it down himself? Maybe the lightning rod on the roof had failed, and the barn had been struck by a bolt of lightning that had incinerated the place in seconds. Then I glanced up. Loping. That's the right word. The outliers usually sway-walked or trundled awkwardly, but this one had a long, loping stride. More like a wolf. It was heading through the knee-high snow toward Da, saliva bubbling between its lips like foam. Stark naked lavender skin against the luminous white snow. That's what I never got used to. All winter animals have a coat of fur or feathers. All but the outliers. I didn't understand how it could move so fast in the cold. Maybe it had just crawled out from the cocoon of a warm den when it scented prey in the vicinity. I didn't know. I just knew it would reach Da before he could get to his rifle. Even if he saw it coming. And he didn't. Instinct kicked in. I notched an arrow in my bow and pulled back the bowstring. Bow hunting is all about an arrow's trajectory, velocity, and kinetic energy. My best range is 40 yards with a 4-inch circle target, but Da was closer to 50 yards away. My recurve bow could launch an arrow 225 feet per second, or 150 miles per hour. The faster an arrow travels, the flatter the flight trajectory and less deviation from wind. There was almost no wind, but it was cold. The revised calculations whizzed through my brain. A 48-pound draw force at 28 inches would launch the arrow at approximately 140 feet per second. Slower than optimum, but good enough. If I could hit the target at 50 yards. The outlier's lope turned into a staggering charge. I didn't even have time to cry out a warning. I steadied myself, held my breath, closed one eye, took aim, and let the arrow fly. It struck the outlier mid-stride, missed its spinal column by a quarter inch and punched through its exoskeleton, ripped through its back muscles, penetrated its heart and seemed to lift it up off the ground before it fell to a heap, burgundy red blood still pumping, spraying gory cartwheels in the snow. Dahl whirled around as the outlier thudded to the ground. He stumbled backwards, surprised and shaken, grabbing for his rifle. But the threat was neutralized. The outlier was dead. Dahl stared down at my arrow, with the familiar fletching jutting from the outlier's back, before he looked up at me. A quick nod of acknowledgement, of thanks. I didn't go any closer. I didn't want to look at what I killed. I know what they look like. Two arms and two legs. Humanoid. Like me. I don't regret what I did, but I don't like to think about it either. I always eat what I kill. I never waste what I hunt. I make full use of meat, tissue, skin, and bone. Nose to tail. Except for that one time. We just walked away, leaving the dead outlier lying on the ground like a fading lilac in the snow. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Daw says one day he will tell me the outlier's origin story. Their story is not in any of our books because books were published during the before. Dodd told me that around the time of the change, books weren't all printed and bound, but words appeared magically on tablet screens. Digital content, it was called. The same for newspapers and magazines. Instead of on paper, information was stored in clouds, which doesn't make sense to me. But Dodd insists that this is true. I've collected a small pile of these tablets and smartphones and laptop computers, but they're all as dead as the wall sockets. Blank. All the words written about the change, as it was happening, have been lost. But Da remembers. And one day he promised he'll tell me a blow-by-blow account of what occurred. But that day hasn't come yet. Da says someday soon. I don't know exactly how old I am. I've grown from the height of Dawes' kneecap to the height of his bearded chin, but he says I won't technically be a man until I grow whiskers. Or at least stubble. My cheeks are still smooth, but I feel strong, like a man. My biceps swell from chopping wood. The veins in my forearms stand out in relief against my pale skin. The muscles across my abdomen ripple from doing heavy chores. The changes are gradual, but the realization has been sudden. I take off my trousers to bathe in the metal tub, and I don't recognize myself. My legs don't look like the legs of the boy I still think I am. There's an old riddle question. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? The answer apparently reveals the philosophical perspective of the person who gives it more than anything else. Sometimes when I hear the crashing of a dead tree whose hollow trunk has finally split wide open, I think about that riddle question. It made a sound because I heard it, but if I wasn't nearby, surely it would still make a sound. The birds and the wildlife in the forest would most certainly hear it. So would the outliers. Lately, I've been applying that concept to myself. If I become a man and there's no one around to see what I've become, am I a man? In a lot of the old books I've read, a man is defined by when he's old enough to go to war or to mate. Wars are cataclysmic events chronicled in history. History is in the past. Any threat of war is long gone. I will never be a soldier. And as Da and I are alone in the world, I will never find a mate. I try not to think about that. I've begun avoiding certain books, like those by D.H. Lawrence, that stir up longings I don't want to face. My shins ache at night. Growing pains, Da says. But each morning when I wake up and rub my fingers across my jaw, no whiskers. Not yet. But soon. Da doesn't talk much anymore. His quietude has come about so gradually that I didn't realize we weren't speaking much, if at all. For years and years, Da spoke all the time, intently trying to impart his wealth of knowledge to the small child in his care. He told me the names of all the trees in the forest, the plants on the hillside, what was edible, what was not, what was medicinal, and what was poisonous. He pointed out every star and every constellation. He showed me how to use tools and how to take apart motors and engines. He taught me how to hunt, to fish, to trap, and how to cook what we brought home. He taught me how to preserve meat and how to can fruits and vegetables we grew in our greenhouse garden. I learned to apply salve to open wounds to stave off infection, and how to sew up cuts and gashes on the livestock or myself. 
I can sew and mend, cook and repair just about anything. Most of all, he taught me to survive in the realm of the outliers. Da is not young, but he's been hardy my whole life, as thick and sturdy as an oak. I observed him putting on his shirt the other day. His ribcage is now as visible as the bleached bones of a skeleton under a thin blanket of fall leaves, and the skin across his cheekbones resembles yellowed parchment. He doesn't stand up straight anymore. His shoulders have rounded and he bends forward a bit, from the waist. Every once in a while he winces in pain, though he tries to hide it. Da will be 78 next summer solstice. That's three years more than the average lifespan of a human being. Are you dying, Da? I ask him. We're both dressed for the cold, standing on the cabin's porch, watching the blinding yellow rays of the morning sun rip through the low clouds. He doesn't look at me when he speaks. We're dying from the moment we're born, boy. You know that. I've never told you otherwise. It's the human condition, the cost of our original sin. That's the most he's said in weeks, and I can see what it cost him. The pain he's been trying to fend off in his chest, maybe in his lungs. He sits down abruptly on the top step. He gasps as he speaks. Why don't you go on ahead? I'll be along after I catch my breath. I know he won't be coming, but I don't say so. I just trot off toward the gate. When I get into the beyond, out of sight of the fence, I start to run as fast as I can, crashing through the frozen brush, not caring that my overflowing tears quickly turn to streaks of ice on my cheeks. I fear for Da. I also fear being completely alone. 100 yards beyond the perimeter of our compound, I make the conscious decision not to think about the future, for now, at least. To try to stay in the moment, to remain vigilant while out in the beyond, alert to my surroundings. Just like history is long over, the future is only theoretical. Neither exists in real time. I take a deep breath, filling my healthy young lungs with fresh air so cold it burns, and I jog at a steady pace, a pace I can maintain for hours and hours, trying to outrun the fears ricocheting around in my head. Fears which are surely pursuing me as zealously as starving outliers in balmy weather. That's all I can do. You're listening to Outliers, narrated by Rory Culkin. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Outliers is executive produced by Dave Beasley and narrated by Rory Culkin. Created by Cassandra Wells and Dave Beasley. Based on the novella Outliers by Cassandra Wells. Produced for Realm by Alexis Latshaw and Haley Wagreich. Additional sound design and editing by Rory O'Shea. 
Cover art by Kendall Thomas and Michał Krasnopolski.